I cannot resist telling the story, even though I've probably told it before, but uh, you know how all the people tell the same stories the whole time, and they don't know that they've already told you that? Well, here we go. So in primary school, I was at a, a rugby tournament, and on the last day of the tournament, the parents would have breakfast with the players. And this might shock some of you, but I have not always been renowned for my fashion sense. So I pitched, I pitched up at the, at the breakfast with the shirt full of stains, full of holes, and um, apparently it, it, it was embarrassing, especially to my mom. So when she saw me, she said, oh, you cannot come to this event like this. Just, just use money, go across the road, and just buy yourself a, a decent shirt. And I said, oh, sure, I mean... A new shirt won't hurt. So I, I walked across, and pr pretty much the first shirt I saw, this was in Durban, and it was, uh, you know, on the side, the street vendor. The first shirt I saw was, I'm not sure if you guys remember this fad back in the day, but you, were, you would have life-sized pictures of, of people, whether it's rugby players or biker mice for Mars or um, wrestlers, you know, um, all, all of those guys. And there was one that stood out. It was of the rapper Tupac. And he was standing like this with all of his bling. And written across the shirt was, only God can judge me. So I, I bought the shirt, immediately put it on, walked to my mom and gave her the change. And, and, and I won that round. I think she knew uh, what, what I was trying to tell her. Now, now that, that sentiment, only God can judge me, has since evolved to only I can judge me in our culture. And this is epitomized by you know, every pop song that you can imagine. There's that James Bay that I quite like. I, my, my, uh, my music taste is apparently not very uh, sophisticated. But he's got this song, um, Why don't you do you and I'll do me. Do you guys know that song? And I'll, I'll stop now. But... The, the point is, is that you do you and I do me, and, and that's, that's, that's the way it's going to be. Uh, Christina Aguilera says you are beautiful in every single way, no matter what they say. And I remember there was a thing that I watched, like a sitcom type thing in, you know, back in the day, and it was called Malcolm in the Middle, and there was a song that you're not the boss of me now, you're not the boss of me now. So the point is that it's this, this culture of self-assertion, and you are not allowed to tell me anything about myself. I will decide what is right and wrong for, uh, for, 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 for me. Now what's interesting, alongside this culture exists another phenomenon that I think is, is worth talking about. It's interesting that there's the rise of the judge. Just think of it. Why are we so fascinated with a guy like Gordon Ramsay? Why, why do people always point a camera in his direction? Because he judges people. He tells chefs who are terrible that they are terrible. Why do we like a Simon Cowell or a Gareth Cliff? I haven't watched an Idols or an X Factor in forever, but at least the appeal, these, these judges were more famous than the people you know, that they were judging. And I think the, why, the reason why we resonated with the, with the good, harsh judge is because we value authentic judgment. There's a referee called Nigel Owens, a Welsh referee, and he's a short guy, and he's got a very sharp tongue. 
And if you go on YouTube, you can Google the best lines of Nigel Owens. And everybody loves this, this referee because he puts these massive super athletes in their place. So when they try to back chat, he always has a word back. You can't do that. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen on a rugby field. You cannot, and, and we love it. Why? Because we value authentic judgment for some reason. Uh, sticking to, to my mother, uh, she, she's, a, she's a kind of a... She's she, she, an imposing figure, and she was a high school teacher, and she was even more imposing. So she only has one eye, which already you know adds to the package. And um, I mean, she's been in the wars. She uh, she always pulls this leg of hers because it we call her Jeffrey Drier because her feet uh, looks like it's three o'clock, and she, she drags this foot um, behind her because you, you can you can hear her before you see her, like most horror movies, and. <laughs> And she always had a stick in her hand. And she would just smash kids. Like, I don't care if you, were, if you were ugly or pretty, if you were a boy or a girl. Like, if you were close to her, she would just smash you with the stick. I mean, it's, it's a miracle that Carte Blanche never did a story, as a matter of fact. But the one thing that, that I noticed over and over again, the worst of the worst kids in that school, they would worship her. And if they're in trouble, where would they go first? They would go to her. Because if they have a chance of not being expelled, it would be because Mrs. Erasmus will be handling their defense. And then she would scold them. She would um, tell them you know, what they are, and they would be the scum of the earth, and they would accept it. And whatever punishment she devises, for however long, they would accept it. Because somehow they know that authentic judgment is valuable. Are you with me? So these two phenomenons exist simultaneously. They don't judge me, and uh, we need somebody to judge well. We, 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 uh, we are in need of that. Now, despite the fact that I think we can, we can argue here that there is such a thing as authentic judgment, most of us will admit that we are uncomfortable when we read about God's judgment in Scripture. Especially, especially if you are, you've got a, bit, you're a little bit westernized. We are very uncomfortable. We like the grace. We like the love. But we become a little bit uncomfortable whenever God talks about, about judgment. And that's why, for, why some of us enjoy our New Testament, and when you look at our Bible from the side, you'll notice the New Testament is dirty and the Old Testament is squeaky clean. Because we don't want to touch the Old Testament because the, the God that's presented there is quite mean. You know, he's, he's, quite, he's quite judgy. Jesus, however, Sermon on the Mount, lilies in the field, you know, he's, he's a hippie. We, we, can, we, we like that, but we struggle with the, with the Old Testament. Now, that characterization of God is of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, is actually very unfair. Because we often characterize someone or something without necessarily talking to that person, without necessarily looking at the data. So, so you guys will probably experience this tomorrow or somewhere in the week where you receive an email from a colleague 
and you do not appreciate the wording of this, this email, and the tone is not good, and whatever. And then you will devise a picture of this person, like, what? who do they think they are? Who do they think I am? Like, why, why would they treat me like this? And then when you approach your colleague and you talk to them for five seconds about it, then you realize that that was not what they intended at all. And, and the whole caricature that you just you know, portrayed in your, or developed in your head becomes redundant. You know, it, it often happens with noisy neighbors. Right? Or maybe you go to a resort or somebody's noisy there and then everybody's like, how inappropriate is that? That is so rude. I mean, how selfish can you be? And then eventually somebody says, well, I've had enough. I'm going to talk to them. And you go, look, man, can you please put it on? You're sorry, man. I, I'm so sorry. You want a beer? And then the next time you're like, no, no, they were really nice people. I, I really enjoy them. But the character that you build up in your head does not fit that. And that's, that's the case in here and it's the case, I think, in scripture as well. Now, what's interesting is that the, the longest description of God we find in, in Exodus 34, so, so where God takes the longest time to describe himself, we, we read about this in Exodus 34, and I'm going to read from verse 6 to 8. By the way, I want to encourage you guys, I know it's a digital age and whatnot, but, but try and bring your Bibles to church. I... I mean, I remembered because I'm preaching, but the, it's, it's good to just be in Scripture together. That's what makes us a weird community. We come together and we learn from Scripture. So, so bring your Bible or just switch it on or whatever uh, thing you, you use. So Exodus 34 from verse 6 says this, The Lord your God is a merciful God. He is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Who of you enjoyed the first bit of that, of that passage? Uh, the, the Lord your God is slow to anger, he's merciful, he's gracious, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love, forgiving inequities and transgressions. And then, ah, but he visits the inequities to the third and the fourth generation. And that often happens in the Bible. You read the passage, oh, that's so beautiful. Ah, I should have stopped. Because the next passage seems like it contradicts the previous passage, and I, I, I preferred that picture of God rather than this picture of God. But let's, let's just pause here for a second. First thing I want to point out is that this, the longest passage where God describes himself to us, is sort of wedged between uh, something very important. So what happened two chapters back is the story of the golden calf. And some of you guys might be familiar with the story of the, of the golden calf. But God has just delivered Israel from Egypt. It's just miracle after miracle. And now he's speaking to, uh, to Moses. And whilst Moses is, is gone, I mean, they are just, the cloud of God's presence is right there. The people come together and they say, hey, we need to worship God. Let's, let's have a religious festival. And they make a golden calf. And, and then we read, this and they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play 
<laughs> That's what they did. So they make a calf, they, they eat and they drink and they make offerings, and they rose up to play. Now, I'm, and, and God is very upset when they, when they worship the calf. And I've always thought, like, I mean, it's just a calf. And it's, it's weird, you shouldn't worship calves. Please don't worship any animal, okay? Uh, but it, it, it didn't seem, you know, that, that dodgy to me, you know, apart from sort of obvious uh, paganism or idolatry, right? But what's interesting is that this is a very polite way to, to phrase this. So these guys have been living in Egypt for a long time. So they practice religion the way the Egyptians practice religion. And what you do is you have a festival for a deity, and when it says they, they ate and they drank, they got hammered, okay? So these Israelites are, are drunk. That's why it's Aaron, because they couldn't pronounce it the first time. So they, they, are, they are super drunk, and then it says... And they rose up to play. They rose up to play. And I thought, that's lovely. You're like ring a ring of roses. Or, you know, we, we, we're done with the festivities. Let's play touches or, or whatever they played in uh, you know, antiquity. But that's got a very strong sexual connotation. So rose up to play means that they had ritual sex with each other. So it is a religious orgy. This is not how you worship God. This is, this is maybe how you did it in, in Egypt with all of these, you know, weird, uh, debaucherous deities and cults. But this is not how you worship Yahweh. So God is indignant. He is angry um, at this. And, and again, to our modern sensibilities, we don't like the emotional God of the Old Testament. Am I right? He's, so, 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 so what you find is Moses says, oh God, please don't destroy these people. And he says, but I, I, I cannot believe they did this. And, and maybe I should just start all over and you know, just erase this project. I can't believe. And this is the, the, the story over and over again. God getting, getting angry, getting emotional about our behavior. But here's the thing. We, we might have a picture of a Greek god in our, in our minds. And by a Greek god, I mean sort of Plato's or Aristotle's god, which is the, the so-called first mover, the so-called uncaused cause. And that god is completely detached, right? It's sort of just a, a, a philosophical um, idea more than anything else. But that is not the, the, the god of the Bible. The god of the Bible is emotional, he is invested in his people. He is indignant. He, when, he, when he sees something that is wrong, it moves him. That is the God that we encounter in, in Scripture. He is a relational God. But despite the fact that we, and um, in, in this case Israel, in, in their early days, they mess up over and over again, God gives this description of his character. And he says, that I am faithful, I am steadfast, I am slow to anger, abounding in love. And then he says, I am steadfast in love for thousands. But, and then he says, I will not, I will by no means clear the guilty. And I visit the iniquity. And then in the Hebrew, apparently it says, to the threes and the fours. Now here's something that is important for us to note. When he talks about his steadfast love, what number does he use? Thousands. So I, 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 I um, what is the word here? Um, 
keeping my, I keep my steadfast love for the thousands, but I punish transgressions to the threes and the fours. So, so that's what it apparently literally looks like. I, I, I keep my steadfast love to the thousands, and I punish to the threes and the fours. Now, what does that look like on a scale? If we want to figure out who God is, can you see that his, his love and his compassion and him being slow to anger and him being gracious far outweigh, outweighs his judgment, right? That's math. I mean, I didn't do math at, at school, or at least not very well, but, but I'm pretty sure this side wins, right? But that doesn't mean that we do not have judgment. But when we talk about God's judgment, we must always do it with this scale in mind, that the love and compassion far outweighs any form of judgment. But the fact of the matter is, there is such a thing um, as, as judgment. God will, God will punish the guilty. Now, what does that look like? Well, now we fast forward into the New Testament, and some of us are far more comfortable with the Jesus and with the New Testament. It, it doesn't seem so judgy. But the problem, however, is that, that many people look at Jesus and say, well, this guy spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And it's, and it's true. So if you don't like hell, um, then you're not going to like Jesus because he speaks about it, uh, like I said, more, more often than anybody else in, in Scripture. And then there's also in the New Testament this idea of the ultimate judgment. And that's when we get to the book of Revelations. And it talks about the final judgment, the last days, what it would look like. And it describes it in rather military terms. So it, we, we, we actually have to struggle with the Old Testament God and with the New Testament God because judgment remains consistent. Now, for example, in Revelations 19, verse 11, we read this. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So he's talking about Jesus. In righteousness he will judge and he will make war. Not necessarily the picture that we have of, of, of Jesus. In verse 15 of chapter 19, Revelation 19, verse 15, he says, And he pours out the wrath of the Almighty. On his enemies. That's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to me at least. He says that he will destroy Babylon. Babylon stands for all of the corrupt, uh, the, the corrupt governments of this world. And it's almost as if, remember, the book of Revelations, and I think one day um, we can do maybe a whole series on the book of Revelations because I think you guys need to hear about judgment more. But the... Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that the Christians are being persecuted. They are being persecuted by imperial Rome. And, and someone might look at the picture that John is, uh, is, is giving us of Jesus, and it looks like maybe he's just going to replace the wrath of Rome with the wrath of God. And this is, instead of imperial Rome, you will have imperial, imperial God, and it's just going to, it's going to be as, as terrifying. But that's not quite the case. Because if you... If you look at Revelations and you go to Revelations 22, then you find a description that I think is crucial if we want to make sense of this. So in Revelations 22, from verse 3, we read this. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Who's on the throne? Who's the one judging? according to Revelation 22. Okay, but, but what image is given? A lamb. A lamb. Can you think of anything less intimidating than a lamb? So, so because men, apparently we've got testosterone, apparently we like to show that we're tough or whatever. So when you place men in hostels, in, in, in reses at, uh, at university, they, they feel like they need to find something that represents them in a sort of strong way. So, so my hostel was represented by an eagle, all right? Eagle is high, pretty cool, fly, they eat stuff. An eagle is, an eagle is strong. The other hostel had a lion for obvious reasons, you know? A lion, I, 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 get, I get a lion. Uh, what, was, what was your mascot? Yeah, Yendra. Eagle, there we go. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, well, okay, maybe, maybe it was unimaginative. But it's, it's an eagle, it's a lion, it's, it's something strong. It's not a lamb. And on top of this, the lamb is drenched in his own blood. That is not a very intimidating picture to conquer the world. But that is the image that Revelation is giving us that is sitting on the throne. So here's the thing. In the imagination of the Bible, when the final judgment comes, the same person who was on the cross, the lamb that was slain, that same compassion that you encounter in, in Exodus, uh, is it 34, um, slow to anger, ready to forgive, uh, abounding in steadfast love to the thousands, that same God is the one with the sword. The same one who will wield the sword in Revelations is the lamb. And it is the wounded lamb. And that is why we cannot say that this is sort of just one tyrant replacing another tyrant. So, for example, if you, if you continue in this passage, then you, you see something else that's interesting. What do tyrants do? They subjugate. They subjugate what, 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 whomever is under them. What does the lamb do when he takes control? Here in the last verse, verse, uh, verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. So he doesn't subjugate. He empowers us. We are going to reign. When he takes the throne, he is going to empower his people and they will reign forever and ever. So it's not sort of you know, a typical tyrannical subjugation. No. It is mobilization. This final judgment looks completely different than, than, than all the imitators that it is replacing. But judgment, it will be nonetheless. And that makes many of us uncomfortable. But I want us to consider this. If we, if we object against judgment, is it possible that we are either indifferent or ignorant to the sufferings of people in the past and today, sufferings of the innocent. Maybe the reason why we reject judgment 
is because we live in a very comfortable little world. We, we've got our estates, nothing, you know, there are no massive atrocities happening around us. So, so, so any, any talk of final judgment makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Sorry to pick on you, Patrick, but, um, but Patrick told me the story, and I might have shared this with you uh, a while ago, that when he was a little boy, his parents would dress him up as a girl because he grew up in the Congo. And why? Not because they're super progressive. Um, they dressed him as a girl so that the, the, the various armies in the Congo waging war against each other wouldn't recruit him as a child soldier. Because if you were seven or eight, they would put a gun in your hand and make you shoot people, and then you would fight for the Lord's Liberation Army or, or some other tyrant who just wants power and is willing to destroy a child's life, a whole family, because he wants power. So maybe us being against a final judgment is because we do not live close to those kinds of realities. Recently, I met up with a friend of mine from Varsity. And since Varsity, this guy went in a horrible direction. He made bad, bad, bad decisions. He, he got involved with a character that soon enough uh, meant that he was involved in rhino poaching. And he was very far removed you know, from, from the poaching, but he was sort of trying to, to pull the levers. He maybe wasn't involved, but he definitely saw women that were trafficked. And he, he saw, apparently it's called a, and I'm, I'm sorry to even mention this in the sermon, but a slush film or a slush film or something like that where um, w w one of these these trafficked girls are, are out of their brains on you know, drugs, they, they've, they're OD, and then somebody would rape her and they would film that and they would sell that. There's a market for that kind of thing. And he saw these atrocities and many other things. And to a certain degree was part of it. Not, not, not in the inner circle, but to a certain degree was part of it. And his conscience started to bother him, and he got out, and it's very difficult to get out of that underworld. And by the way, that underworld is not far removed from where you guys are now. This, it, it, it operates from you know, very posh suburbs here in the city. And he tried to get out, and then he, he said that, how can he stop this whole thing from, from happening? Because he might be out, and it's, it's still a little bit difficult for him, but but every day there are other women just being you know, put on this, on this conveyor belt and, and more rhinos being poached and you know, more cars being hijacked at gunpoint because of this syndicate that, that controls these things. And, and then he, he thought of, of, of testifying against these guys. And he said his, his one problem is and I, and I encouraged him, yeah, yeah, please testify. I mean, stop this. And he said, they will kill my kids. This guy will order a hit on my kids from prison. And that is if he goes to prison. He's had multiple altercations with the law in the past. And every time he walks away free, his parents are rich. He's got loads of wealth. What about the hawks? The hawks are compromised as well. He's got people on, on, on their payroll. I googled this guy, you know, the, the, the baddie a little bit, and a lot of it checks out. And, 
It's like this guy is untouchable. And these horrible things that I mentioned to you earlier continues unabated. And we decided that he shouldn't testify, that he should keep away from, 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 from that life, and he's trying his best not to you know, go back into that. Um, but it's so unfair, and for, for, for weeks on end, I contemplated what happened, or what I just heard. And the fact that the justice system is not going to give us justice in this case. And you know what happened? I became very imaginative in terms of what I want to do with this perpetrator. I want to catch him, well, I'm not going to give you the details, um, but if I had the resources, how I would enable justice by myself. Some of you, yeah, we must take him out, but not in my imagination. Taking him out would be far too merciful. You know, we, 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 we need a, a long-term plan here. And I became bitter. For a whole week, I was bitter just trying to plot vengeance against this guy and his whole organization. And you know what? It wasn't pretty that was going on in my mind. And I wasn't really... <laughs> I, 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 there wasn't much sanity that was, that was left. And then I remember this passage in Romans 12, verse 17 to 21. It says... Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I'm going to read that again. Repay no one evil for evil. This is Romans 12 from verse 17. Repay no one with evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's the only way to remain sane is if you believe that there will be judgment in the end. By believing in that, I am able to live non-violently now. And you want to know something? If you entered my imagination as I was contemplating what I wanted to do with this guy, and you, and you came in at, at that scene, then it would be very difficult for you to distinguish between who's the good guy and the bad guy. I would look, I would become as horrible as this person if left to my own devices. Does that make sense? If I take vengeance into my own hands, I would become like this person that, 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 that I despise. The Anabaptists, they are, the, 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 the Amish, I never know how to pronounce them, the Amish or the Amish, okay? but, but both of them. Uh, so, so these guys are Anabaptists, and they believe quite vividly that one day there will be a final judgment, and those against God will be slain, and it will be, um, it's, it's quite vivid. But you know what's interesting? Because they have that view of the end times, they are able to live remarkably nonviolent lives. 
So some of you might be familiar with the story at Nickel Mines where the gunmen went in there, chased all the boys out of the kindergarten, killed all of these, these girls, uh, these, these Amish girls in the kindergarten. And then the Amish response after that was what? They went to visit the widow of the gunman who killed the girls and himself. They raised money for the widow of the guy who killed their kids so that she can be okay. They publicly forgave him and her and everybody involved. How is that possible? Because they, can, they believe that one day God will set these things right. We do not have to worry about those things, and that enables us to live non-violent lives now. Does that make sense? I know it doesn't make sense, but, 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 but somehow it does. There's a picture that the, the Bible is always reminding us of, that we are longing for, and it's a, a picture that one day this world will be set right. Isaiah 11, is it Isaiah? Isaiah 11, we read, this is from verse 4, but this, this one who will judge, and it's, it's thinking prophetically of Jesus, um, this, the one with righteousness shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. So they are so excited about one day we're going to have this, this good judge. And then it goes on. And, and these images that might be familiar to you. Uh, the lion will, be, will lie down next to the, next to the lime. The cow, will bear, and, and the, the cow and the bear shall graze. And the young shall lie down together. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put her, his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the ultimate vision. So when the Bible talks about judgment, it's almost always talking about it in excite, excitedly. In longing terms, oh, God, please come and judge, because then the world will be set right. We are uncomfortable with judgment, but in the Hebrew imagination, it's the best thing. Oh, God, please come and judge. Come and set the world right. I want to help me think about this a lot. is a guy called Miroslav Wolf. And Miroslav Wolf, he... He was a theologian that, well, he is a theologian still, um, and he was caught up in the horrors of the Balkan War where Serbians killed Muslims, killed Croatians, and it was just, it was just a mess. I'm not sure if you guys, some of you can remember the 90s and the fact that um, uh, South Africa wasn't the only thing that the news covered. Uh, Post-Soviet war, um, these various nationalisms just, just killed each other, and it was, a, it was an absolute mess. And, and he reflects on all of this and, and tries to f figure out how can one forgive and move on um, after atrocities, after the atrocities that happened in the Balkan. And, and this is what he says, and, and, and you will recognize many of the themes that we spoke about this evening. He says this, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. That's the first thing. 
a God that is not angry against the injustices of the world will be an accomplice. He is not worthy of our worship. Does that make sense? So we don't, we, 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 that's why we don't worship this unmoved mover, this uncaused cause, you know, in sort of abstract sense. He doesn't care about the affairs of humans. No, he's, he's, he's the one who gets super emotional about the things we do, good and bad. And he says this. He says, outside the world of wishful thinking, evildoers all too often thrive. And when they are overthrown, the victors are not, not much better than the defeated. But a nice God is a figment of liberal imagination. So he's a theologian at Yale. A lot of liberals exist there. And he says, this idea of a nice God, a non-judgmental God, in whatever, whatever way that you, you, you uh, understand that, that is a figment of liberal imagination. He says, there is no trace of this non-indignant God in the biblical texts, be it in the Old Testament or the New Testament, be it Jesus of Nazareth or John of Patmos. He says, one day, God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Does that make sense? He goes on, he says, the God of the cross is not different from the God of the second coming. So in other words, the rider on the, um, on the white horse and the lamb and the crucified Messiah, they are the same. The God of the cross is not different from the God of the second coming. After all, the cross is not forgiveness pure and simple, but God's setting aright the world of injustice and deception. The violence of the rider on the white horse, I suggest is the symbolic portrayal of the final exclusion of everything that refuses to be redeemed by God's suffering love. I know that's dense, and we can unpack that um, some more, but I think it, it touches on a lot of these themes as we try to make sense of, of God and God's judgment. Friends, let me wrap up by saying this. This is part of our essentials series, looking at the essentials of the faith. What are some of the core and the basic tenets of, of Christianity? And we've spoken about creation, we've spoken about sin, we've spoken about the cross, we've spoken about resurrection, we've spoken about the kingdom of God. But we cannot neglect to mention judgment as part of the essentials. Why? Because to a large extent, it gives meaning to what we do now. History is linear. It's not cyclical. In other words, history doesn't just go around in cycles like that. No, there is going to be an end. This, 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 the, the whole story of mankind is, is moving in a particular direction. And there is a God who notices. And there is a God who will judge and judge fairly and, and put the world right. And what we do in this life is not random because one day there's a God that will judge and he will use what, what, what we did and what we didn't do and somehow he would put the world right and then that vision of Isaiah 11 will, will come true when all these things come together. We can talk about what that looks like, but friends, we need judgment. 
This world needs to be judged and judge rightly. This world must be set right. Without that, you, you don't have Christianity. God is very much interested in this world. And the one who is doing the judging is it the lamb who is wounded himself. And he's one that we can trust to, to judge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we struggle with this and we, we, we come at this question with a lot of cultural bias and you know, we, we live in a world where, where to not judge is pretty much the only virtue left. And maybe that's why we struggle with the various passages where we read about your judgment. But Lord, I pray that we will will see that we desperately need your good judgment on this world. Thank you, Lord, that, that you are, however, the crucified Messiah that judges. It is the Lamb that sets the world right. Lord, there are so many horrible things happening in this world, so many people who have been killed innocently throughout history. And Lord, we, we need to believe that those things and these things have meaning. And the only way that they have meaning, Lord, is if one day you will judge and you will set everything right. That one day we will all meet our maker. Thank you, Lord, for for the great saving work that you did on the cross. But Lord, help us to live in these last days between the resurrection and when you come with intentionality that we would in our own ways try and, 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 and bring your kingdom to this world in the knowledge that one day you will restore everything. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.